0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, as we record this, this is the week after Fourth of July. I don't know about you, I've been still hearing a lot of fireworks. There's also a thunderstorm going on in the background. Do you think Thor might be aware that we're potentially talking about him?
0: Yeah, I mean, who knows? It's good that we're indoors, not going to get struck by lightning, Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's it's a good time to, you know, be in shelter. Uh, We are going to be talking, of course, about one of the biggest films of the summer so far. That's going to be the MCU's Thor Love and Thunder. It's Chris Hemsworth's fourth go-around with the character, oh Taika Waititi's second. It's momentous time.
1: It, it absolutely is. We're also going to be tackling sort of the theme of love, but like in a completely different vein with Jonathan Demme's 1986 movie, Something Wild for the Watchlist segment.
0: We've got the love. We've got the thunder all coming up on episode 341 of Seeing and Believing. There's a maniac who seeks to end us all. I'm putting together the greatest team ever. Are you packed? Yes.
1: We've got Korg.
0: He's my best friend.
1: Yes. There's my ex-girlfriend, Jane. Valkyrie.
0: This is the best day of my life. The Guardians. And
1: giant goats! Oh, look at those! They are wonderful!
0: Yes, they are. They also scream quite a lot. You said this would be a relaxing holiday! I said it was going to
1: be like a relaxing holiday. shake to the Asgardian shake into the snake that you cannot trust. Really dragging this out and finish the classic Asgardian high one.
0: Well, you know, we're here on episode 341 of Seeing and Believing, and I admit that I'm a little bit disappointed that we already burned your Led Zeppelin uh, impression (laughs) in an earlier episode, Sarah, because, you know, even though that, you know, emigrant song doesn't show up in this Thor movie.
1: I mean, I can do the baseline from... um Guns and Roses' Sweet Child of Mine which does make an appearance in this movie okay. so yeah maybe I'll have to dig up my bass guitar somewhere I have no idea where that thing is All right, we'll, we'll yeah. keep
0: that in our back pocket see if it, there's an appropriate time during the discussion we can break that out mm-hmm. Thor Love and Thunder is of course on the docket for this first segment we're going to be getting to Sarah's watch list recommendation "1986," is Something Wild here in a second but for now we'll uh, go to maybe not the land of ice and No, it's more outer space where we spend a lot of time in this movie. Mm -hmm. Thor Love and Thunder finds the God of Thunder, semi-retired and trying to figure out what's next for his life. But Thor's retirement is interrupted by a galactic killer known as Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale, a vengeful apostate who seeks the extinction of the gods. To combat the threat, Thor enlists the help of Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, his rock buddy Korg, voiced by director Taika Waititi, and his ex, Dr. Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, who, to Thor's surprise, has become the mighty Thor in his stead and wields his magical hammer, Mjolnir. Together, this band embarks on a harrowing cosmic adventure to stop the god butcher's path of vengeance and stop him before it's too late. So, you know, this is the second outing with Thor for Taika Waititi and it maintains the amiable off-kilter sense of humor that has become his trademark over the last few years. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, for the discussion starter here, I feel like we can move from the general to the specific here with Waititi. What are your thoughts on his style in general in his previous films? How well did it work for you in his previous outing with Thor, Mm -hmm. Thor Ragnarok? And how well did it work for you here with Love and Thunder?
1: Yeah, Taika Waititi is one of those guys where I kind of need him in small doses, um, which really bums me out. Because when he's funny and it's working, like for me specifically, I'm all over it. I love what we do in the shadows. It's one of my all time favorite vampire movies, and probably like one of the most fun experiences I've had in the movie theater. So. High praise, I guess, for, for what we do in the shadows, which is great. And if you haven't seen it, you should just go and watch that movie, probably. <laughs> um, some of his other stuff I felt a little bit more, like, middling to positive to, to mixed on. Um, I really don't love Jojo Rabbit. And, like, I'm fine with Hunt for the Wielder, people. I think it's very charming. Sam Neill is fantastic. Um, it's a good movie, but it's not one that I spend a lot of time thinking about, if that makes sense. Um Thor Ragnarok might be one of my favorite movies in the MCU, though. So I'm really, like, I'm hot and cold on, on Taika Waititi. Um, I feel like his shtick is a little bit overdone in this one, though. Um, it felt like it was just a little bit too much of him, like, sort of interjecting with his own character, like, undercutting another character's punchline to deliver yet another punchline on top of it. Like, it, it kind of felt like he was sort of... I don't know, pointing out a joke and saying, aren't I clever? And then trying to pile on the cleverness on top of that. And that just really didn't work for me. So where where are you on him? And then on this specifically?
0: Uh, well, I I'm kind of in the same boat as you with him in general. I... You know what we do in the shadows. I think is fantastic comedy. He he's never been better as both a director and an actor. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fantastic movie. Uh, not the biggest fan of uh, of Jojo Rabbit. Uh, that that was I think one of Wade's and my more uh, vociferous disagreements. <laughs> he he liked that movie more than I did. Um, just didn't really work for me at all. Thor Ragnarok. I I feel like. It it felt like a, a feature length Saturday morning cartoon to mm-hmm. me, and your mileage kind of varies on whether that sounds like something that's enjoyable for you. I know that it worked for a lot of people. Obviously, it, it worked for you. Definitely for me, for it me. was sort of fine. I didn't really find myself over the moon for that one, but it didn't. Re- it went down smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, with this movie, I feel like it's a Saturday morning cartoon, except it's not even funny, mm-hmm. which. It, it, and I think a lot of it is down to what you kind of said in, in your remarks, which is that it's kind of lampshades on top of lampshades with the humor in this movie, where it's where it, it makes a joke about uh, you know the, the relationship dynamic between Thor and Jane Foster, and then it kind of just keeps making the same joke, mm-hmm. and that might work with a pairing that just has off the charts chemistry and um where the sniping is just sort of where where it's sort of a screwball feel that works Mm -hmm. i don't think that natalie portman and chris hemsworth are that pairing I, i just there's something off about the the bickering, the the you know the ex couple bickering that happens between these two characters that I just isn't enough to sustain the movie, and which is a problem because the movie leans so heavily on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. The movie almost feels kind of aimless, like it's trying to be a hangout movie, and I really wish that it had leaned more into the hangout movie, like sensibility, I feel like, because there doesn't really feel like there's so much of a sense of urgency, which is kind of wild, just given some of the character developments that happen within this movie, which um, we won't spoil, of course, but um, certain characters are ill and other characters are kind of like dealing with existential crises, and it's all coming to head with Gore the God Butcher, who is out for blood, and... All three of those crises, like, if they were honed to a point and, like, had a purpose and felt like they were going somewhere, I think I would have been more along for the ride. But I feel like the movie kept trying to undercut a lot of the humor and be additionally humorous on top of it. And it it kind of left me feeling a little bit flat about both the stakes and about just, like, the general thrust of the
0: story overall. I mean... This the the stakes start out really high with this movie. You start out; it, it begins on uh, Christian Bale's Gore. Uh, he cradles his daughter in his arms as she dies, mm-hmm. um, and then he discovers what is called the Necro Sword, which is the super weapon that can murder undying beings such as gods. And he uses it shortly thereafter, and. Uh, that's, and he does it specifically because he's, he, uh, is so angry that his devotion to this particular God was not even rewarded. It was mocked. And Mm -hmm. that's, and that's really, I mean, those are high stakes. Killing gods is high stakes. That kind of goes without saying. (laughs) Yeah. And it also is really, an interesting motivation for a villain. I feel, you know, Marvel gets taken to task a lot for having their villains be the weakest parts of their movies. But I actually think that Gore is one of the more interesting ones they've ever had because he's one of the first ones that where the, um, the evil plan isn't just because, uh, you know, he's just, he wants to take over the world or, you know, do something kind of stereotypically villainous. It's not because he's dealing with some sort of personal, trauma that that he's sorting through in in unhealthy ways there's a general genuine spiritual uh rage and uh and anguish Mm -hmm. underlying this character so i was kind of on board after that first sequence so when it kind of moves on to this much more low-key thor trying to figure out how he feels about being friends with his ex after she broke up with him I I kind of felt like I, it's not necessarily that either of those things would be a problem, but together, do they work? Maybe they could, but this isn't the movie where something like that does work.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think a better balanced movie would have been able to juggle both of those and give them um, the gravitas that they needed for the first plot point, And then I think the screwball sensibility that the second piece probably needed. And I think part of the problem is that There could have been so much more and better relationship tension, both between Thor and Jane Foster and also between Thor and Gore. Like, it kind of feels like Gore's mission to go out and murder all of the gods in the universe is one that would be a little bit more compelling if each of the individual gods that he's going for, like, he has personal stakes or personal animosity towards them. And it feels like it's really only just, oh, these people are gods, and so I must murder them. And It feels almost detached on a certain level. Maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be a Thor is the god that Gore worshipped or anything like that. Maybe it could just be like, I don't know, um, some sort of personal, like they don't see eye to eye and therefore like one of them's got to go like this town isn't big enough for the both of us kind of sensibility. I don't know. It just it felt a little bit empty because it really felt like it was just Thor is another check mark on a list potentially and that works in some movies like it really works in something like kill bill but it really doesn't work here because it just felt a little bit more rote i you know i i think
0: to a certain extent i can get behind gore's motivation just generally being like kill all gods all gods are bad Mm -hmm. you know free mankind that's sort of like the satanist credo (laughs) in a lot of ways so that's as fair as as it as far as it goes I think maybe the larger problem is that it doesn't seem to really emotionally affect Thor himself that much. So, mm-hmm. one of the more interesting threads from Thor Ragnarok was Thor coming to terms with the fact that Asgard wasn't the paradise that he kind of thought it used to be. He There's this whole subplot about how Asgard has this dark past that was sort of papered over by Odin and the rest of the gods, and they just prefer not to think about it until Kate Blanchett's uh Hella comes back and and just, you know, rips rips the mask away and says, This is what your history is, mm-hmm. and now you're going to pay for it. And I think that that kind of it would seem like that would lay some fertile groundwork for this film where Thor has to contend with the fact that this guy's out to kill gods because a particular god uh, mocked his allegiance. Mm-hmm. Do I have any sort of responsibility myself as a god to those who those who are not gods. Th- to, uh, do I have any responsibilities w- with my power other than just sort of saving the day every now and then? Mm-hmm. And the film just doesn't seem all that interested in exploring what Thor feels about Gore's mission of vengeance. Other than that, he would rather not be dead, which, yes, that's that's true. Most people would not want to be dead, but I would kind of... There's so much more you could do with the concept that's just left on the table here in favor of some not all that inspired relationship comedy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of a bummer because there is some interesting like relationship stuff that happens in this movie. I feel like Thor and Jane's relationship does get fleshed out a little bit better than it ever was in the first (laughs) two Thor movies, which is a really low bar to clear. And Taika Waititi does clear it and it is kind of entertaining and funny and you get like a solid sense of who these two people were, not just as themselves, but as a couple. But then the movie feels like it's kind of trying to grasp at that without actually making any like actual attempts to hold on to it. Um, There's just a couple of like throwaway lines of dialogue where they keep making that same joke of I'm talking to my ex and I'm uncomfortable and I'm going to make the moment as awkward as I possibly can. I think we've all been there. Um, it's definitely not a fun situation to be in. But if you're going to tell a story with that, then you have to take it a little bit further. And I think it would have been much more interesting to get some sort of ongoing relationship tension, both with Thor and Jane and then also with Thor and Gore. Maybe not like a we're not so different, to you and I kind of kind of monologue, but maybe some sort of being able to see each other eye to eye and understand where the other is, and not being able to bridge that gap. I think that that kind of relationship tension was something that was sort of fainted at a little bit in this movie, and it just doesn't quite get there, because it's really only interested in the surface-level stuff, and not in the, I can't make this connection with you, and we're never going to be able to bridge it. And I don't know, like, that in and of itself just disappoints me more than anything else, I think. The
0: structure of the film is a problem here, because... You're right that it just the, the film doesn't really build any momentum in any of the on any of the plot arcs that sort of sets up for itself. The the Gore of the God Butcher arc is just sort of it's there and Christian Bale's a lot of fun. He's probably my favorite part of the film. He's just kind mm-hmm. of off in his own corner of the movie, being this weird, creepy goblin wizard, and it's it's great. Yeah. I like him a lot. Um he's fun to sort of like pop out of the showers and kind of go boogity boogity at some kids for a little <laughs> while. Like that's that's enjoyable. I enjoy that, um, but it's also not something that the the film really spends a lot of time on. I think Bale maybe gets two two big scenes when when he's not just kind of in a fight scene with somebody.
1: Yeah, maybe like fifteen minutes of screen time tops. Yeah,
0: it, it's very limited. Um, the The relationship drama. You're right that there's again some solid foundation there that's not really built upon it's mostly ytd seems mostly content to kind of make jokes about how there's a love triangle between thor mjolnir and jane yes and that's again it's amusing but it never really builds to anything and part of that is i mean to me and i don't know if this is the way you felt it kind of felt to me like this is a movie that was conceptualized as working either as a feature film or could also be a limited Disney Plus streaming show. It feels like Mm -hmm. there's very clear demarcations between, you know, every half hour, the movie sort of resets and we're off to a new place or uh, off to, you know, having the next big conversation. Um, But then at that reset point, it's sort of like we're back where we started and we're going to go off in a completely different direction. Which is really counterproductive for getting me to care about any of these threads.
1: I mean, I feel like a lot of Marvel movies are structured that way, so I... <sighs>
0: I, may, I don't, maybe it's just that the seams are really obvious in this one. I don't know. I It was really blaringly obvious for me with this film
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i think my complaint isn't so much structural as i wish that it had leaned in a little bit more into the weird and not in the taika waititi sense of the weird because there's some really weird stuff that happens in this movie you've got your screaming goats and you've got like a bunch of other like characters who pop up and and do their thing and say their piece and then disappear and and peace out forever essentially um I kind of wish it had leaned a little bit more into the weird and dark, though. Um, Christian Bale, like you said, is a lot of fun in this movie. But I don't feel like he was quite dark enough. And I think if we had had, I don't know, a little bit more of the Sam Raimi influence off Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I did not love that movie very much. (laughs) But I think if we had gotten a little bit more of that weird sensibility and willingness to like kind of go a little bit off balance and kind of stay there until it feels a little bit uncomfortable, I would have been a little bit more on board with it because Christian Bale does, you know jump out of the shadows and go boogity boogity but it feels safe and i don't want my villains to feel safe and unfortunately that that's all that this movie really feels like i mean
0: it does but at the same time it's almost like ytd is purposely making a movie for children mm-hmm. and i don't i don't mean that in a pejorative like oh it's it stinks just because a kid might enjoy it i mean mm-hmm. it literally seems like um, Waititi wants to be telling a story about um, Thor sort of moving on from his carefree hedonistic days as the single guy and he kind of like moves more into dad mode. In fact, the the opening narration talks about Thor going from dad bod to god bod like that's that's yeah. it's definitely hit there. And with the way the uh, gore's plan Proceeding, where he ends up kidnapping some children and using them as part of his master plan, and so those kids do figure prominently into the the plot of the movie and specifically mm-hmm. into the climax. And so you can't make it all that dark because then we're kind of yeah you, you don't want to scare the target audience, I guess <laughs> too much. You you want you want it to be a little bit creepy, but you don't want to go full on, uh you know. Sam Raimi, you know, Scarlet Witch is turned into yeah. somebody who is literally going to murder everyone in the world. I, I just don't know if that would work.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I think that you could probably balance it out like a little bit better, other than just I don't know, Christian Bale popping up out of the shadows and then disappearing again. It does feel very um, Saturday morning cartoons and like specifically like 80s action movie, I think on a certain level, but I think those movies are willing to put their kids in a little bit more danger. And Wow, that sounded really heartless, just coming out of my <laughs> mouth. Um, but I'll stand by it. I don't know it it a lot of the action in this movie feels kind of toothless like it's it's still the stakes are stated to be very high, but I didn't really believe them, and I think it's because. Everything just sort of gets defanged by a joke or by a sudden pivot to another situation or to, I don't know, some some other thing that's just off on the periphery that doesn't really have necessarily much of a point. And I feel like this movie would have been a lot better if it had either had a very distinct point and like a drive to get to that point very much like Ragnarok does I think I think Ragnarok's a, little, a lot more cohesive than this movie is or if it had just sort of leaned back into the let's hang out with Thor and let's just go on a personal journey with him and see how he feels about existing in this universe as this specific person now that he's achieved everything that they achieved at the end of, of Avengers Endgame um, I think either of those stories would have been a lot more interesting than this one and in this case the movie just kind of feels like it's being in those two directions, and feels a lot more aimless as a result.
0: I mean, I, I I almost feel like we're we're kind of coming at the at the same problem from different angles. For me, I think that's that's a symptom of just the structure, just sort of like not really want not having either the energy to sort of see one of these things through to completion, mm. and just sort of kind of almost getting distracted <laughs> yeah. and going off on another. And to be fair, some of the distractions are. Like I said, am- amusing is a good term for them because I don't think they're hilarious. Yeah. I think you know, like when they make a detour to a a um a place without going into too many spoilers, where lots of Gore's targets are are congregated. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, we get kind of a uh, a cameo of sorts in that scene. Um, there's a lot of um repartee going on, and it's 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 fun as far as it goes. Mm-hmm. It just feels like, what are we even doing here other than to kind of have something to break up the story that we're actually interested in? Yeah. And I just don't know that the film ever – the film could maybe – there could be a version of the film that answers that question satisfactorily, but this version of the film ain't it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree with you there. I think I was fine with some of those diversions too because it was a little bit more on the dialogue side than the action side because – I don't know about you. I am sick of Marvel, like third act action sequences where it's a lot of, I don't know, things flying around and you can't necessarily see everything that was going on here either. Um, There's a little bit of that in this movie, but it does feel a little bit more relaxed, too.
0: Yeah, I, the, I, and maybe that would be a way that it could have leaned more into the darkness as well is just kind of letting Gore's... The the, the way that Gore fights, he has that sword, of course. He also has uh, these creatures that he can summon. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get a good look at them. Yeah. And which again, it kind of just feels like we're watching actors in front of a green screen sort of swinging, swinging their weapons and punching. But there's no real physicality to it in any way that makes us feel like either they're in danger or oh these things are really gross and scary mm-hmm. i hope they don't you know cause any damage yeah the, the, maybe that's kind of where the def- defanged quality that you're talking about is coming from
1: it 100 is like I, I didn't believe that any of the characters who were doing battle with these creatures were in any like state of danger whatsoever it felt like it was just another step to reach in order to get to i don't know whatever the end goal of this movie is which
0: (sighs) let's let's uh maybe talk a little bit about that end goal because it set it begins with kind of the story of a vengeful apostate going to kill all gods everywhere Mm -hmm. what do you make of I mean, without going, obviously, we're not going to go into spoilers, but do you think that this film eventually kind of takes that in a direction that you find compelling?
1: I think it could have if it had been willing to commit a little bit more fully into the differences between those different characters. It's that it's that question of, of character versus structure again, I think. I think that if it had been willing to delve a little bit more than just skin deep into the different psyches of these characters, I think it could have worked. But... It just, it it feels so surface level that it just, it did not satisfy me in any way. I
0: I guess I'm wondering what the difference is between a god and a mortal. Yeah. And and, I mean, obviously Thor has superpowers, but other, other than that obvious difference, what's the difference between him and just an average person? What's the relationship between him and say somebody like Gore who would be a devotee of his... like what is what is that and it's frustrating uh, that the movie doesn't really go into that at all if he is the god of thunder
1: i mean i think the first the kenneth branagh one the the very first thor um sort of just says oh they're they're space aliens who happen to have extra powers or something like that and they're sort of immortal marvel fans please do not come at me i am not a a comic book person (laughs) by much of a stretch as you can probably tell um I feel like it's kind of hand-waved a little bit and I think that that could be a really interesting and thorny question that this movie could have potentially addressed and just really wasn't willing to go there. And that really bums me out.
0: Yeah, well, Marvel fans, if you have the comic book fan uh version of the necrosword again please don't come at us with with Mm -hmm. that uh for for this opinion but sadly that's our disappointed review of Mm -hmm. thor love and thunder if you get a chance to see it it's out this weekend obviously so we Mm -hmm. know lots of you are going to go see it we'd love to hear your thoughts and i'm sure you'll have many you can tweet us at c believe pod to let us know those thoughts or if you've got a lot to say you can always email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com. We're gonna be turning our attention to Jonathan Demi's Something Wild up in the second segment. Don't go anywhere, that's coming up. Welcome to the Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So, Sarah, I know I knew when we had our review of Marcel the Shell with shoes on mm-hmm. last week, I knew that I was going to catch it from some people for being not quite as over the moon for it as, as you were. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked it okay. Yeah, I took it to task for for some things. And I knew when I said that, I was like, I'm going to hear from somebody over this
1: It's because you're wrong. I mean,
0: <laughs> well, Don Shanahan of every movie, a lesson and the podcast cinephile hissy fit is definitely on your side with that. He tweeted as to let us know that I'm with Sarah on this one. Sorry, Kevin, you're being a Scrooge on Marcel the shell with shoes on. So. I mean,
1: thank you, Don, for the backup.
0: Bah humbug. I, you know, I don't know what else to say. Thanks for writing in. Don also actually had an answer to another question that we posed on Twitter uh, earlier this week, actually. You
1: wanted to know, Sarah, what was it? Uh, we wanted to know if people out there had a favorite Marvel movie performance. Just knowing that we were going to be watching Thor Love and Thunder. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's, there's some comic stuff going on in there. You've got Christian Bale doing... Christian Bales thing Um, and I was just curious to know like there's 20 something movies in this series there's got to be a few good performances out there.
0: Well, well Don had some thoughts on that as well. He kept it in the Thor universe. Uh, he's he said I think Kate Blanchett was wonderful as a threatening and uncompromising villain in Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Too many villain stories try to play the sympathy card and hers does not, which I appreciate. And I'm that's a really great pick and it was on my shortlist for my favorite performances in the MCU. I think Kate Blanchett is just magnetic in that film. I I love like everything about what she's doing in her performance and the costuming is great. She's wonderful. She
1: knows exactly what movie she's in and she's having a lot of fun with it. And I'm definitely on board with that for sure. Um, We also heard from Dave Lester who said Chadwick Boseman was great as Black Panther. Um, and Robert Downey Jr. embodied Tony Stark pretty well. I'm going to definitely agree with Chadwick Boseman. I think just the the level of gravitas that he brought to that role is just absolutely incredible. And, uh, I, I miss him a lot already, honestly. Um, Jake Merrick also tweeted at Dave Lester uh, to respond back to us and said, agreed on both fronts. So about both Chadwick Boseman and about Robert Downey Jr. And then he said, I will also add that Bradley Cooper as the voice of Rocket was great and the most unexpected performance to this day. I still can't picture him doing that voice, Um, which, yeah, I get that. I. I'm not sure how you get that voice out of that <laughs> body necessarily, but it is a pretty good it's – a, it's a solid performance. Yeah, that's that's a great
0: pick. So um, I guess maybe we can turn this question around on, on the hosts. Of course. Uh, I'm assuming since you asked the question, Sarah, that you had a pick in mind – when when you asked it or at least you arrived at a pick after you asked
1: it. yeah i half the time when i tweet these questions out i have no idea what my answer would be which is part of the reason why i ask them because i think it's it's interesting to hear from other people um my pick is tony leung in shang chi and the legend of the ten rings um i think that he is absolutely incredible and uh Again, there's there is that like dearth of good villains. I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I for one was very disappointed by Christopher Eccleston in Thor: The Dark World because I love him so mm-hmm. much, and I was also disappointed by Lee Pace. But again, um, that's that's enough of that. We will leave those particular performances by the wayside and just sing the praises. I think of Tony Leung because he deserves them.
0: I mean, when you get a you know a, a national treasure yes. like like Tony Leung, and not like. A world treasure, I guess. Maybe mm-hmm. like he he is tremendous, and that's a a great pick. Um, and I I kind of now that I'm looking at my pick, I'm like, I like mine, but man, yeah, that was really good in that. Uh, my pick would be uh, Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger and Black Panther. I just I love Michael B. Jordan. I think Killmonger might be. In terms of writing, might be the most interesting, compelling uh, villain in mm-hmm. the entire MCU. And I don't know, I just, I really, anytime that Jordan is on screen in that film, it's, he's, he holds your attention mm-hmm. fat fixed, so... Yeah,
1: he's he's definitely magnetic for sure.
0: Well, listeners, uh, if you you know have some thoughts on this question while you're busy uh, writing your responses to us about our review of Thor: Love and Thunder, obviously we're interested in uh, hearing some more great picks about the your favorite Marvel. Characters. There's obviously a lot of them. The mm-hmm. MCU's been going for quite a while now, so got a lot to pick from. Uh, like we said, you can tweet us at C Believe Pod or email us at seeing and believing, capc at gmail.com. So now it's time for the watch list segment. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host has not seen and introduces it to them for the very first time, and then we talk about it on the air. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, for this week's episode, you decided to pair 1986's Jonathan Demme film Something Wild Mm -hmm. with Thor Love and Thunder. Here's a film synopsis. Uh, Something Wild is a film about an uptight square played by Jeff Daniels who gets carried away almost literally by a free-spirited young woman played by Melanie Griffith who detects a streak of rebellion in him when she catches him trying to pull a dine-and-dash without paying at lunch. The route takes them from New York City to small-town Pennsylvania as the couple learns more about each other's pasts, what they choose to tell each other, what they choose to hide and how Lulu's threatening XCON X played by the great late Ray Liotta intersects with it all. So um, like I said, this is, I, we were talking about this before we started recording mm-hmm. and I told you that I was really interested to know why you chose to pair this with Thor love and thunder, because Thor love and thunder is a big, you know, blockbuster, you know, lots of, you know, action adventure. This is, Something Wild is deceptively small in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So what's the commonality here that made you think, oh, I'm going to pair Something Wild with Thor Love and Thunder?
1: Okay, it's a little galaxy-brained, but there's a lot of different reasons. So it's a colorful 1980s movie with some action, some romance, a killer soundtrack. There's a lot of good needle drops in both of these movies arguably a lot more in something wild than there are in Thor love and thunder, but still like there's some solid needle drops in there. And it's about primarily a man who has achieved the highest success possible that he can get at his point in time and at his age, um, who is also mourning a romantic relationship and who hasn't really fully nailed down who he is yet. And he figures that out over the course of this movie. So that is the connective tissue that I have between Thor love and thunder and something wild does that track for you or was that is that still a bit of a a shot out of the field
0: that that really tracks for me and it makes me appreciate the film a lot more okay good cards on the table i you know i do like this film or or, um but after i watched it i was just like i just feel like there's i'm not clicking with it Mm. and I, i we can get into maybe my reasons for reacting that way in a little bit, but I, I want to stick with what you said first, because I think that's both a great summation of kind of what this film is doing beyond just kind of its basic narrative beats. Mm -hmm. And also what uh, is charming about it, because this is, this is a film that kind of doesn't lend itself well to being pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was watching it, I think part of the reason it took me so long to sort of figure out, What was going on here is I was like, okay, so is this this going to be a noir? You know, is Melanie Griffiths going to be a femme fatale who's, you know, winding Jeff Daniels' character around her little finger? And then at one point the shoe is going to drop and we're going to realize what her scheme is. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as the film goes on, I was like, no, she genuinely... Likes this guy, so is it going to be sort of a straight up romance where she's the manic pixie dream girl and teaches him to really live with gusto? But that's not really it either, because then Ray Liotta comes on the scene and oh, yeah. really complicates things for them. Mm-hmm. So then, is it what is this movie? And and so I don't know that the film ever, while I was watching it, fully satisfactorily addressed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that that's maybe why Jonathan Demi is sometimes a really interesting director is his films do kind of make space for uh, a lot of complicated, messy humanity that doesn't necessarily fit into neat categories. Mm -hmm. Um, And I appreciate that about him. I don't know that I would say that Something Wild is my favorite vehicle for that sensibility, Okay. but having heard you talk about it, I may be coming around to it a little bit more.
1: Oh, we love to hear that, honestly. (laughs) It's funny because I think about this movie first as a... Road movie slash sort of screwball comedy. And I'm not really a screwball comedy person, at least of the few that I have seen. Like, there are some that I enjoy quite a bit. Obviously, we watched The Lady Eve and I was taken by it because who would not be taken by Barbara Stanwyck? Um, and Melanie Griffith definitely isn't Barbara Stanwyck, but I don't think she's trying to be. I think that her character is trying on a lot of different identities all at once. And I think that she is just as confused about who she is. As Jeff Daniels as Charlie is confused about who she is as well, and I think a lot of the the charm, especially in the first half of this movie, is these two characters coming to a point where they realize like, oh, this is who you are versus who you say you are, and then once they realize who the other person fully is, then they're able to address the relationship on slightly more even terms than how it starts out. Um, and then it takes that really sharp left turn when Ray Liotta shows up, and I'm curious to know, like, did that catch you off guard, or was that something that you were expecting, or um, I don't know, did did that shift in tone work for you?
0: Well, I was I was expecting I was expecting it to some extent just because I you know with Ray Liotta's passing I heard a lot about something wild being a really great performance from him, mm-hmm. and so I knew that he was playing kind of this this the scary tough guy in this film and so i i was waiting for him to show up i was looking forward to him showing up and when he showed up he didn't really disappoint he didn't disappoint Mm -hmm. he it's a great performance he's both he he is very threatening but he's also he's not threatening in sort of like a an impassive untouchable sort of thug kind of way he's he's much more he's more mercurial than that Mm -hmm. i guess and so um I was not taken off guard by that so much. I was taken off guard maybe by the tonal shift where it the the film kind of becomes much more serious mm-hmm. about specifically Melanie Griffith's character uh where she's earlier in the film she's kind of this this not not flighty person. She's she just kind of does what she wants and she lets the chips fall where they may and just sort of takes every development as it comes and Lives with sort of a devil-may-care attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, Where Ray Liotta's character comes in, we start to see that she's actually genuinely threatened by him Mm -hmm. and uh, is uh, frightened by him, um, but has a a history with him that's not just sort of... It's not the same kind of relationship as the one that she initiates with Jeff Daniels' character. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I think that mostly works for me. I don't know that it entirely works for me. Um, Mainly just because Ray Liotta is so, he's so threatening and menacing (laughs) that it unbalances the film a little bit. And it kind Mm of, he he steals the show a little bit, which is very nice if you're a fan of Ray Liotta as I am. Mm -hmm. But it also kind of means that it feels more like the radio show, and less like the, the the central couple feels a little bit diminished in his presence, mm. and maybe that's kind of where I'm feeling like the the movie stumbles a little bit.
1: Okay, yeah, I can get that. Um, it's definitely his movie, probably from like that midpoint. I think he shows up right at the exact midpoint, and I think that's where the balance kind of works for me a little bit. Is you you get. Lulu slash Audrey, Melanie Griffith's character, and then you get Charlie kind of sussing each other out and deciding, like, we're both going to just go with it and, like you said, let the chips fall where they may. And then Reliotta shows up and he kind of calls their bluff and says, like, you, you really can't do that because if you do, there's going to be consequences. And a lot of those consequences are going to be things that he's going to do that nobody else is going to like because he is a very bad man who is out from prison and who is out for blood because Audrey has left him. And I think that that for me works because on the one side you have your your two erstwhile like road tripping like sort of lovers who who don't really know who they are versus this one guy who knows exactly who he is and exactly what he wants. And that kind of drive forces audrey and charlie to figure out like well we have to do something and i don't think they fully know what it is even by the end of the movie necessarily but i think they understand that they need to figure out like they they can't just be aimless wanderers anymore and i think that that level of like subconscious character like development is something that really really works for me so Mm. i'm a a sucker for some good character driven storytelling which i think is coming out a lot in this particular conversation (laughs) (laughs) i i mean
0: I I think that I'm tracking with with what you're saying here, and I think that on balance the film does work in that way. I do. My personal wish would be that there had been a little bit more hint of that that idea that these these people can't keep on flying this close to the sun forever. Hmm. Um, the the way that their earlier capers are presented, and they are capers. They're 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 light. They're comic. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a, scene where they kind of, they go out for lunch together and then they both dash out on the check after Lulu leaves Charlie holding the bag. And then she literally drives up to the front door and says, jump in because otherwise we're not going to get out. <laughs> we're not going to get out of this. And he, you know, he runs out the door and dives in and there's, you know, the chef is running after them, waving his chef hat and like yelling at them, come back and pay your check. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all very, it, it's all It's frothy. It's fun. And, I feel like it's so much, it's so sunny that when Ray Liotta comes in and sort of changes the whole tenor of the movie, it feels less like, oh, their bill is coming due, and more like, oh, we're in a different movie now.
1: Hmm. Okay, I I can see this from from two different ways. One, because I always feel like the bill is coming due. And maybe that's the level of anxiety that I watch movies with is that (laughs) scenes like that, where they do dine and dash make me deeply uncomfortable, because I don't like watching characters get away with escapades like that, necessarily. Um, And two, um, I think that there is still a little bit of the same tone and tenor in the movie, but it's not from the main characters. It's from all of the side characters that they meet up with. And I think that they're definitely on a rewatch. There are definitely hints that there's more to this particular couple than what meets the eye, or at least there's more to the individual people in this couple than meets the eye. You get hints that um, Charlie, who claims that he's married, is no longer married pretty early on in the movie, but it's not something that... Demi necessarily like telegraphs very loudly to you. It's really only there. um, if you know where to look for those signs at one point, he pretends that he's on a phone call to his wife and his kid. And just before he hangs up, you can actually hear the dial tone coming on. Um, and then you get like other additional hints about, um, Audrey's particular past. Like she's got a scrapbook at home that has a couple of clippings that are about a, a specific gunman who has held up several gas stations. Um, And they're focused on just enough that those are probably going to be relevant. And I feel like that's probably right about the same point that the movie's tonal shift like takes its turn for me. And then it really swerves once Ray Liotta appears on screen and says his first line. Um, But throughout the entire movie, both before Ray Liotta shows up and after, you get kind of this fun cast of side characters who just keep popping up throughout the road trip. So you have uh, a bunch of guys who are just like standing outside of a gas station wrapping together. And they're, they're clearly having the time of their lives. Um, you get a used car salesman, played by John Waters, which is a great <laughs> cameo. Um, there's somebody playing a harmonica. like, and, and Jonathan Demme treats all of these side characters with like just enough respect and just enough time taken that you can tell that they are fully realized characters off the camera, even if you're never going to get any other additional details from them. And I think it's that level of um, dignity that he affords to them that I think makes the rest of the movie work as a whole because it isn't just about charlie and lulu slash audrey and ray it's it's about everybody else that they kind of coming to contact with too yeah i
0: mean it's interesting so i'm i want to get your thought specifically about charlie and uh his wife or lack thereof because for the first half of the film uh, that was a big obstacle for me really enjoying it, which is the, you know, the idea that, oh, there's this guy who ostensibly, as far as the audience knows, up to that point, he is married, he mm-hmm. has a family, and yet he decides to, you know, hit the road with a stranger he barely knows, just because he's attracted to her, and they kind of embark on this whirlwind affair, and that, seemed, that has the effect of making them both deeply unsympathetic yes and so when we do get the revelation that oh charlie's been lying and he's not actually married it doesn't read like oh he's been deceiving lulu audrey it's more the the effect on me was of relief like oh thank goodness he wasn't actually married so he wasn't actually blowing up his family for somebody he, he barely knew and i think that quality might be idiosyncratic just to me but it's a reason why i had a hard time orienting myself as to what this movie was actually trying to say about our two main characters.
1: I do. I I agree with you that the first time I saw this movie, that aspect made me queasy. So totally get that totally on board with it. I think coming at it, it feels a little bit lighter knowing that detail going in, which maybe takes away some of the impact of the story potentially. I think a lot of this movie is about um, Charlie and Lulu and the identities that they have put on in order to try to prove their worth to other people. And I think for Charlie in particular, it's that level of, I was married and now I'm not, but I must keep up appearances. I have to keep this house on Long Island. I have to maintain my my job, um, working as an investment banker. Like, and he he clearly seems to take pride in it. But I think a lot of a lot of the life that he lives, which is extremely square, is also one where he's doing it just because that is what you do if you want to attain like status and quote unquote worth in this particular era of this particular slice of New York city. Like you gotta be an investment banker because that's what all of the like important people do, I guess. Um, and so I think that, piece of his identity getting undermined and Lulu being like truly angry with him about it because he did lie to her about that particular piece of, of him um I think forces him as a character and then us sort of by extension as the audience to to consider like what is actually important is it that appearance of that relationship or is that act is it that actual like deep connection with another person I don't actually know fully where I like land on that with this particular movie but I appreciate the ride that Demi is willing to go on and the fact that he isn't willing to give us an answer either I think he's just presenting this story as a story and then we have to take away what we want to take away from it and I respect that kind of storytelling very very much because it doesn't feel didactic or anything like that
0: it it's a good point that this film does in in a lot of ways Trust its audience and doesn't try to spoon feed them. I mean, you know, I love me a noir movie. I love noir, and the one of the things I love about noir is kind of that 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 formula, uh, which jives with me. You know my my personal sensibilities really well. Just like these people are bad people, and they're gonna get what's coming to them. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe that that makes me a uh, you know a, I don't know a hardcore Calvinist or something <laughs> in, in deep deep inside. Who knows? But uh, I I think that that's but it's a formula for a reason. Like you you know going in exactly kind of what this movie is going to to give you, mm-hmm. and you can sort of approach it and enjoy it from from that perspective already kind of knowing that's going to give you what you want mm-hmm. and something wild doesn't really do that. And while that can be a little bit frustrating at times, it is refreshing that Demi doesn't just sort of want to make this just a story about the free spirit, helping the, the, the uptight stuffed shirt to live little. It's not a movie about the, the evil femme fatale who's going to lure Lure this guy into infidelity and then double cross him. Mm-hmm. It's not about, uh, you know, the, the good guy protecting a uh, damsel from her evil ex. It's, it's kind of all of those elements are in there, but it's not any one of those easily digestible things, which I appreciate. I'm not going to say that I wasn't frustrated by some of the, the storytelling moves that happen here, but mm. I, res- like you said, I
1: respect it. What frustrated you out of out of curiosity? I,
0: I think it's it's mainly that that dynamic of the revelation of Daniels' marital status coming as late as it does, um, and recontextualizing everything so violently that hmm. it's hard for me to come around to the characters after that point. And maybe it would change on a on a rewatch, but for Lulu to knowingly go get into a relationship with a married guy in this way. I mean, it, it makes it, it makes the, the betrayal that she feels kind of strange because shouldn't she be relieved that she wasn't actually it. it it's, it's the murkiness of the morality here is, is tripping me up and I'm not sure that it's a helpful murkiness. Hmm. It, it's, it's not clear to me that the movie is taking the right thing seriously. Maybe hmm. like the, the betrayal is the thing that it focuses on when the, when the revelation of his marriage comes to light instead of the fact that it should be good that at least he's not cheating on a wife and leaving his daughters behind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I feel like that betrayal that Lulu feels is, is one that like, I, I, I I can't say that I understand it necessarily, but I think I understand what she feels in that moment because I think she thought she had a read on Charlie and because she no longer has that read on him, then she can't really claim the same sort of like level of ownership over him. Like hmm. I'm sort of thinking this through, like as I'm talking about it, because that's, that's a piece of murkiness that like trips me up a little bit too. And I think that's part of the reason why I like this movie is because I keep coming back to it because I don't have a full handle on it. Just like Lulu doesn't necessarily have a full handle on Charlie and who he is. And I think I respect the movie for that, especially because Ray, Ray Liotta's character, I love that he keeps (laughs) the same name, by the way. Um, Ray feels like he has that same level of ownership over Lulu slash Audrey as well. And so it almost feels like she is taking that abusive dynamic and trying to map it onto her other relationships with other people. And I don't know if it's because she doesn't know how else to be in relationship with anybody else, or if, or if it's, that's just what she's looking for, or she's trying something else out that's new. It seems pretty clear that she's the kind of person who will try on different personalities and different personas to present to the world, partly as armor. And I think in this case, Mm -hmm. She has taken on that, like, sense of ownership over somebody else in in such a way that she feels kind of wounded when she's been called out on it. And so I think some of that sense of betrayal is realization that, like, she could have been hurting someone and maybe she really wanted to. And now she doesn't because she she just doesn't have that power over him in the way that she thought she did. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's (gasps) that's kind of where I'm coming out on that.
0: Tell me if this crackpot theory makes sense to you. What if... Demi's characters in this film are essentially going through the same journey that the audience is going as we watch it. So part of my frustration is feeling like I couldn't get a handle on the characters um, and being frustrated by the ways their, their characterization is recontextualized for me over the course of the film. Whereas these other characters like Lulu and Charlie and Ray, all of them experience similar frustrations with each other or other emotions because they realize that the person across from them isn't the person they thought mm-hmm. they were so uh obviously you know we've, we've already talked about the ways that happens between lulu and charlie uh with ray also he thinks that he's still kind of going to have lulu waiting for him when he gets out and when she has moved on and not has just moved on but has has very firmly tells him that she doesn't love him anymore. She doesn't want him around anymore. Mm-hmm. That wounds him. You can definitely tell that wounds him. And then in the final confrontation, where uh, Charlie semi accidentally stabs Ray, mm-hmm. um, Demi gives us this this um, this close up of Ray Liotta's face. The
1: Demi shot. It, yeah, the
0: Demi shot. Uh, where where he just he's looking just so vulnerable and he sa- and he he just he just says Charlie's name mm-hmm. and he he looks he looks betrayed yes like, how could Charlie I thought Charlie was the wimp the guy who's you know the the New York wuss who I can just push around how could he how could he do this to me how could he stab me it's it's like an emotional betrayal and a physical betrayal yes so maybe that's what Demi is doing here is that he's not letting the audience put characters into boxes and if we feel frustrated by it well his characters feel frustrated by it as well
1: (laughs) no i think that completely tracks and i think it's telling that the demi shot only happens like right at that final confrontation and it actually happens twice one right after the other you get that straight on shot of ray and then you get the reverse shot of charlie's face as well as he realizes what he's done and he realizes like what he's done specifically to ray and then the camera does this thing where it's watching both men at an angle. You can see both of their heads and it sort of shifts. Tak Fujimoto is, is the cinematographer and does a fantastic job on this. But the camera sort of shifts and brings both of them into profile so that you can see both of them looking at each other in profile, like sort of perpendicular to, to the camera lens. And I think that is the one moment in the movie where any one character under fully and completely understands any of the other characters that mm-hmm. they're interacting with. And I think that that shot is precisely why I love this movie so much because it is so emotionally intelligent about where its characters are and what they're going through, even when they're going through something awful and violent and traumatic.
0: No, that's that's a rousing defense, and I think we can we can leave it here. Thanks for sharing something wild with me. I'm glad that I had the chance to catch up with it.
1: It was fun to tangle with it with you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, listeners, that is our watch list segment. Um, if you had a chance to watch along with us, obviously there's a lot to dig into with mm-hmm. something wild. So let us know your thoughts on that as well. If you've had a chance to do that next week. I'm really excited about the Watchlist segment. First, we should probably share that we are going to be not reviewing a brand new release, Mm -hmm. but we are going to be reviewing a release that came out at least stateside this year. It's the Indian Telugu film R.R.
1: Is it R.R.R.? It's R.R.R. Telugu, actually. is, is Telugu. Yes, is is the language. Um, R.R.R. I am so excited to be reviewing this movie. Um, I think I saw some rumblings about it back in March, and it feels like it's sort of been been building that momentum, which feels appropriate for a three-hour-long movie about Indian revolutionaries fighting colonial powers. I'm very excited yeah, to watch it's,
0: this. It's it's an action-adventure I'm looking forward to as well, uh, and it is strange streaming on Netflix so you know anybody can catch up with it anytime. We're going to be catching up with it next week and for the watch list pairing, I'm so excited to be sharing Shane Black's 2005 film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I it's a hilarious pitch black comedy that I can't wait to share with you.
1: I'm I'm excited to watch this one. I I do appreciate Shane Black quite a bit. Um, I actually think his Iron Man three is also one of the better Marvel movies. Potentially, I, I think
0: it's underrated for it's, sure.
1: It's it's also a solid Christmas movie, which is a wild thing to say.
0: Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is also a very solid Christmas movie.
1: You're making me watch another Christmas movie not during Christmas time. I'm not sure how I feel about this now.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean it's it's Christmas in California, so it'll be it would oh, okay. you know it's it's still warm weather. It's it's totally fine.
1: We'll forgive that.
0: Yeah, uh, listeners, that is going to be on the agenda for next week's episode as well. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and believing is brought to you by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Walsh larson
0: And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculturecom network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.